In a sport like cycling, anyone can do it and it's accessible to anyone. And I can go for a ride with you. I can go for a ride with my father. And if I'm not doing any intervals or if I was on a flat road and you're sitting in my slipstream, we can ride together. What is up, you sexy bastards? It's your boy, GC, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to professional cyclist Ryan Gibbons. I actually met Ryan at a gas station. True story. I was riding my bike in Girona, Spain, and outside the store, I saw this guy in a UAE jersey, which is the team that is the top in the world, and they have the two-time Tour de France winner, Tadej Bogacha. Now, I thought Ryan was a poser wearing the jersey, but I went up to him and said, hey, are you on the team? And it turns out I was wrong, and he is actually on this team. He was extremely kind and generous with his time answering our questions outside the gas station, I was still curious, so I hit him up on Instagram, and we were able to have this interesting follow-up conversation. A little bit more about Ryan. He is the 29-year-old national champion cyclist from South Africa. He is competing, again, with the UAE Emirates team, which is top in the world. He started his pro career when he was 21, but he didn't even know you could get paid for riding a bike at that time. He took his chance to go pro because it paid basically the same as a good corporate job, and he has raced all around the world in competitions like the Tour de France and Olympics. Go give Ryan some love on Instagram and Twitter. It's at RyanGibbons23. That's R-Y-A-N-G-I-B-B-O-N-S 23. And you can check out his rides on Strava. I do as well. At RyanGibbons, R-Y-A-N-G-I-B-B-O-N-S. If you've ever wanted to learn about the not-so-glamorous life of a pro cyclist and amazing facts about it, you're going to love this episode. Here's three gigantic things you'll take away. One, how much does a pro cyclist make and the economics of cycling? Two, why he consumes the equivalent of four Coca-Colas per hour, and three, the key difference between an amateur and a pro. You're going to enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive on the show, go join my newsletter, okdork.com. I have exclusive content just for you gorgeous subscribers that are on the email list. That is okdork.com. And secondly, check out my course, How to Start a $1,000 a Month Business, aka monthly1k.com. It has helped over 10,000 people on their business journey and if you're interested in strategies, support, some community, check it out as well. I think it's only 20 bucks, or it might be raised a little bit by now, but it is definitely worth it. Think about it. If you can have your own business, how cool is that? You can ride bikes with me and Ryan. Now check it out at okdork.com slash monthly1k. Also, special pre-show shout out to listener Alex in Austin. I know who he is. He left a review saying, warts and all. I love how real Noah is, willing to be, and how he shares his failures and challenges. My favorite ones are the ones with Tynan because he just seems to think in a different direction than most people. I agree. Thank you, Alex, and every other one of you gorgeous listeners. I feel honored that you give me your earlobes and your ears and you go and take action and kick ass in your own life. If you want a shout out in a future episode, you know what to do. Leave a review wherever you listen to the show. I check every single one of them. That was cool to meet you at a gas station and now we're, we're chatting on the interwebs. What are the chances? And also like the smallest little gas station in a town that I would never be able to, to tell you what the name of it was. Just to paint the picture for the people that are listening, I saw you in the UAE outfit and my first thought is like, this guy's a poser. I get it, he likes to cycle. He's got the skinny cyclist body. <laughs> but there's no, he's like on this, literally one of the top teams in the world. And then you were super kind and generous when I asked and you are. Exactly. This part of the world, it's overpopulated with professional athletes, especially non-Europeans. As an ex English-speaking expat, this is actually the hub. So around the Barcelona-Girona region, you're going to find a lot of bike riders. There are a lot of men in tights. <laughs> <laughs> is what we see. 
out there. So for the audience who doesn't know Ryan Gibbons, you're a pro cyclist. Who is Ryan Gibbons? It's a very common question. And even back home in South Africa, where I'm from, people ask me that. And they say, Ryan Gibbons, what do you do? And I, I say, I ride bikes. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. And, and what do you do as a job? <laughs> I'm a South African, riding for UAE Team Emirates. As you mentioned, currently one of the top teams in the world on the World Tour of Cycling. So it's the pinnacle of the sport. There's 18 teams in the World Tour and I happen to be one on one of the better teams. So living the dream, riding my bike around the world and yeah, soaking it up. Is it the dream? It is. I think with any dream, people don't realize there's a lot of hardships. There's a lot of sacrifice. There's a lot of suffering. You as a bike rider understand that it's amazing to ride a bike. It's not nice to suffer and to struggle up a mountain or ride in 40 degree temperatures. But it is the dream. And yeah, I'm grateful. I get to do amazing events. Thoroughly enjoying it. And yeah, loving every moment for the most part. When did you realize you could actually do it professionally? I think you mentioned when I met you, you were the national champion of South Africa. Correct. In South Africa, it's a very small professional sport. It's done recreationally. A lot of people ride in the morning before work or ride in the evening after work. They do it to keep fit. They do it for the social aspect. And there's a lot of like local races, but it's like these grand fondos or these events where anyone can sign up and like doing a marathon, you can do it competitively or you can just do it in your age group. When I was 17 years old, I finished school and I got this opportunity to go to Europe and it was to ride bikes, but I took it as a free vacation in Europe, going to Amsterdam, going to places like that. So I lived the dream a little bit, doing a little bit of bike riding on the side. And I did a few events and one of them, I managed to get a podium. I came third and some Belgian gentleman came up to me and he said, would you like to be on our team next year? I don't know what that means, but I'm getting a free bike. I'm getting free stuff. Sick, why not? <laughs> and I was still like, very naive, very, I wouldn't say ignorant, but unaware of what it could mean. Only thing that I realized people actually can make money from this and, and you can do this full time. And thereafter, the new world was opened up for me. What was the team? What was the story in that experience? It was a Belgian club team. I did that as a 19-year-old. It was a very tough experience for me. I got a taste of what it was about, but I was very homesick, not really understanding what cycling was. I thought, oh, if you're going to be a bike rider, you're going to ride your bike when you want to. Do a few hours here and there. But then I realized it's a full-time job. You're going to be riding your bike sometimes six hours every day. You have to be quite strict with your diet. You're going to be away from friends and family for 300 odd days of the year. So I wasn't ready for it right then. Went back to South Africa. And then when I was 21, I thought, you know what? Feeling a bit more mature, feeling ready for this. I feel like I can do this. And then gave it another shot. And yeah, turned professional that year when I was 21. And how old are you today? 28. What is the peak age of cycling? I was listening to this Lance Armstrong interview today. And there's some commentary about the younger cyclists are even faster, where it used to historically be in your 30s. What I was led to believe, you're coming into your prime early 30s. Even when I turned professional at 21, people said, when you hit 30, that's the age. And riders were riding professionally until they were 40. And in the last seven years, since I've been professional, that's turned on its head. Nowadays, if you aren't winning by the time you're 22, 23, you're over it, you're past the hill. And the average age of the professional peloton went from about 31 when I turned professional to about 25, 26 now. So I feel like I'm still in my prime and I've got a few good years ahead of me. <laughs> But there's a lot more pressure and it's crazy to see how the youngsters from 18, 19, 20 are coming into the professional peloton and winning already. Oh man, so many, I'm so curious about a lot of these different things. How was it different at 21 than 19 for you? I think finishing school, you still want to experience 
life as a youngster. You know, you want to go to parties and you don't want to be fully committed, tied down in one particular field. You want to see what's out there. You want to see, do I enjoy this? Yeah, I enjoy this, but I'm not willing to commit everything to this right now. I didn't have the discipline or the actual dedication. I thought I had a little bit of talent, but I wasn't prepared to cut out spending time with my mates or live across the globe for 10 months of the year. And then from 19, 20, 21, I realized, firstly, from a financial point of view, if you were to make it as a professional, it's not like other professional sports, but it's still better than 95% of the other corporate jobs or things I could have done, especially in South Africa. And I also realized that I had the privileged opportunity and not many people get this opportunity to be professional. So many youngsters ride bicycles and they have this dream of turning professional. As a non-European, it's hard to understand it. Probably here in the States or if you're in South Africa yeah. or Australia, you don't see it as a profession. But if you're in mainland Europe, especially countries like Belgium and France, it's football or soccer and cycling. There's so many youngsters who aspire and would do anything to have that opportunity. When I was 20, 21, did I realize that I kind of got a foot in the door, I've got a few options and it would be stupid not to take it. So when I was 21, I thought a little bit more mature, or I'd give it a go. How was it to compete against people more globally? Like you're competing in South Africa, you're like, oh, I'm really fast here. And then you get to global stage at 21. It's so different. And I think most people who do a sport within their country, doing it globally, firstly, there's a, a lot more competition. So you can be a big fish in a small pond, and all of a sudden, now you're a small fish. Not only that, just the dynamic and racing is different. In South Africa, the races I was doing locally, you're riding on big roads. The peloton was maybe 60 riders. Now you're all of a sudden in a peloton of 200 riders. There's guys from all over the world and you're racing on these tiny little French roads or Dutch roads. And it's a different sport. It's not just about how strong you are, how fit you are. It's about fighting for position or about tactics. Similar with race distances. In South Africa, the races were maybe three hours. Sometimes on the tour, you're doing six, seven hour days. So it's a big eye opener. I've been pro for, this is my eighth season and I'm still learning every race I go to. What was the training like? coming in? Training, even in the last seven, eight years, it's changed. First and foremost is you've got to have what they call in cycling a base. So that's just your general fitness level. You're doing those long, steady miles in the winter. So in November, December, January months, you're doing probably 30 hours a week on the bike. Just good <laughs> steady miles. And then as you get closer to your races and the season's very long. Professional cycling, the season starts in February and it goes until October. Naturally, you can't be good the whole time. You know, you're going to have these target events, which you're going to aim to peak for, and then you're going to have your recovery in between. But when you're approaching a race, that's your goal race. So whether it be a race in Australia or the Tour or the Giro d'Italia, for example, leading up to that, you're going to be doing really specific work. So things like interval training sessions, gym work, you'll maybe go up a mountain and you'll go up and down 10 times, or you'll go behind a motorbike or a car, what's called motor pacing, and do kind of speed work. So it all depends on the kind of rider you are and also what you're focusing for and what your goal is. I think a few things that are super interesting. I cycle. I don't know a lot about cycling. Let me just be clear. I just get on my bike and I pedal a lot. I suffer and I enjoy it. One of the things that's fascinating is that people want to be professional. I imagine, I know myself included, we don't realize that you guys put in professional hours. I'm like, oh, you're a professional cyclist. You get on the bike and you go. But you guys, you are putting in six hours almost daily and also alone. I think that was the thing I was surprised when I met you. I'm like, where's your security team? <laughs> where's the wagon or whatever French word they call it? But 30 hours on a bike is a long time. We did like four and a half on Saturday. And it's a long time on a sit. And you're doing it you know, five, six days a week. 
Exactly. And we do have these specialized or specific training camps where we have these three-week blocks where we'll have team support and guys behind you with wheels and, and spare in case you have mechanical issues and of course food and, and spare bottles and things like that. But for the majority, like you say, you're on your own. And again, those 30 hours a week, that's just on the bike. There's a lot of strength and conditioning work. You're doing stretching, even things like recovery. A lot of people are like, oh, so you ride your bike for six hours a day, but a normal work day is eight to nine hours. So you've got so much time to do nothing. <laughs> but it's very important to recover as well. Sometimes it's hard to do a training ride and then you're almost forced to rest and recover, which means you can't just go for a walk or you can't go to the mall or mess around. You've actually got to put time aside to recover. And again, that's sometimes hard, especially on like a recovery day. So if you do train six days a week and you have that one day, which is off, it's not a day that you can go and run errands and, and do things that you couldn't do the previous days. That's a day that's got to be okay. Do as little as possible. Try to lie down with your legs elevated. Eat correctly. Go for a massage if possible. Sounds like the dream, but sometimes getting a massage is more painful than it is pleasurable. So a lot more goes into it than just the time on the bike. What was the pay at this first club when you were 21? Oh, I think it was 250 euros a month. So I don't know, maybe that's 220 odd dollars a month. I was 18 and it was more than I was going to be getting in South Africa. So I thought at the time that was amazing. And then when you went back 21, did you get more when you went back to being professional? Yes. At that time, it wasn't technically classified as professional. In the world of cycling, I think the misconception is if you get paid to do something, you're professional. And I guess that's pretty true. But in cycling terms, you're only considered professional if you're in what's called a world tour team or in a professional continental team. So in the world, there's 18 world tour teams. That's the Premier League, the highest division. And then one division down, it's called professional continental. And there's about 30 teams. So yeah, there's 48 teams and, and each team has got a squad of about 30 riders. So only if you're on one of those two, can you call yourself professional. And when I was 21, that was when I went into one of these teams. And to be professional, it's governed by an international cycling union called the UCI. And there's a minimum salary set. And I think as it stands, the minimum you can earn to be a professional cyclist is about 70,000 euros a year. But when I turned professional eight years ago, it was 40. So I started on the bare minimum. But I signed going from 250 euros a month to 40,000 euros a year. So that's over 3,000 a month. And again, at 21, I thought, wow, this is it. I've, I've made it. Wow. What is the eating like during a week, even now? Like today, what do you eat? And then what is your recovery like? Being on one of the most professional teams in the world, everything is monitored. Everything is governed. So my diet plan is based on my training. So for example, I've got a coach and on a Sunday evening, he'll give me my training for the next seven days. And then our nutritionist in the team will say, okay, Ryan, I see that tomorrow you've got a five-hour day, not too many intervals, it's not too intense. Therefore, we're going to give you this many calories for the day, focusing on high-carb breakfast, high-carb during your training, and then you slow down a little bit after the day. It's based nowadays not so much on calories, but more on grams of carbohydrates. That's the energy source, that's the fuel, the sugars, that's what keeps you going. And... It's changed so much. And I mean, our bodies have become so efficient and you almost have to train them to process and digest these carbohydrates. But you're looking at on average between 80 to 120 grams of carbs per hour. Now, that is a lot of sugar. To put things into perspective, that's like having four Coca-Colas per hour. So I'm doing a six-hour day. I'm having 25 Cokes. I'm not drinking 25 Coke, but that's how much sugar you're having. It's not healthy for, for the normal <laughs> But because you're doing this to your body and you're conditioned and you're training that much, you need to fuel yourself. Because if you don't, 
you're going to get super skinny, super lean, but you're going to get to a point where you just have nothing, you just get empty and emptier. So in order to ensure that we stay fueled up and able to perform, obviously every training ride you do, you have a heart rate monitor, you have power meets on the bike. The coaches can really see exactly how much effort you exerted, how many calories you burned, and therefore give you a diet plan to facilitate and to ensure that you're fueled. So for today, what did you ride and what did you eat? This morning, I had about 200 grams of carbs for breakfast. So I had a muesli, I had oats, yogurt, and fruit. And then on the bike, I had, I started with two bottles with an electrolyte and isocarb mix. And I had just gels. So my team is sponsored by Innovit. They're a nutrition sponsor, supplement sponsor. And each of our gels, pretty much like a syrup or like a honey consistency. And each sachet has got 40 grams of carbohydrates. So I think I started with 10 and I was aiming to consume two per hour and then top up with a little bit of the mix. And I stopped at a garage, similar to where I met you. And halfway through, I bought myself a Gatorade equivalent and, and a water to ensure that I was topped up and, and fueled all the way home. So you had 10 of those packets in one ride? I do. Fortunately, I'm sponsored by them, so I get boxes <laughs> and boxes. <laughs> but yeah, for the, the average person, I think it can be quite a costly exercise if you want to really fuel yourself efficiently. Yeah, and how much did you ride today? Today was about 125 kilometers, so it wasn't too long, 80 miles or so. But I had some focus intervals, so some 30-second flat-out sprints. And then four minutes repeat the plan. So I'd go four minutes as hard as I could, four minutes recovery, four minutes as hard as I could. And I did that about six or seven times. Yeah, we were calculating. I think you said that you did four watts a kilogram for like most of your ride last time. Yeah. We were looking at our times and we were like two at the same time. And you did 70 miles. I think it was like 110 kilometers. And we were like, that was our whole ride. You're like, yeah, it was a light day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I think to get to that level is very impressive and to actually see what you guys are able to do. I think it's just like, oh, look, they're pedaling a bike. Yeah, of course. I think that's something that's also so unique about a sport like cycling. If you think of American football, if you think of, I don't know, tennis, it's very hard. You can appreciate the professionals, but in a sport like cycling, anyone can do it and it's accessible to anyone. And I can go for a ride with you. I can go for a ride with my father. And if I'm not doing any intervals or if I was on a flat road and you're sitting in my slipstream, we can ride together, which makes it great in a way because it's, it's so inclusive. But at the same time, it's hard to differentiate and like you say, appreciate what it means to be a professional. Because I think the common idea is I can get in my bike and do three hours. Anyone can do that. But to race and to put out those numbers, it's hard work and conditioning. And then what do you do the rest of the day for food and recovery like on a day like today? So a day like today, it's also based on what my ride is tomorrow. So my ride tomorrow is not going to be too intense. It's going to be a long day, but not too intense. So immediately when I finish, a few years ago, the concept was you've got to have your recovery shake, which is protein. Now it's, you've got to have your protein, but it's also just replenishing your carbs. So I had the recovery shake, which was 40 grams of carbs and the same amount of protein. Had a meal, a light meal, nothing too heavy. And then for dinner, I'll have chicken, rice, some veg, limiting my carb intake. Like I said, tomorrow is not too strenuous on the body. When you're a professional athlete and you're, you're training so hard, it's actually to get by by doing a three, four hour ride. If it's not too hard, you don't actually need that much. You know, it's maybe not healthy to go and do a fasted three, four hour bike ride, but you can. And at the moment I'm a little bit heavy, so I need to shed off a little bit of <laughs> a few kilograms for my next race. So I'll be quite low carb for tomorrow's training. And what is heavy and what weight are you targeting? 
at the moment, I'm 74 kilograms. I'm not sure what that is in pounds. And I want to beat my good race weight to 72. So I've got two kilograms to lose and I'm racing next week. So I've got seven days to lose two kilograms. Probably not the healthiest or smartest. I know they say don't try and lose more than half a kilogram a week if it's going to be sustainable, but I'm going to try and lose two kilograms in this next week. What, what's the next race coming up? I'm actually doing the World Championships. It's in Scotland, Glasgow. And yeah, this is where I think between two and six riders from every nation get selected by the national federation to go. The winner of this race is deemed the world champs and they get to wear the rainbow jersey. So it's white jersey with stripes and they're known as the world champs for calendar year. How do you think your chances are for this? Another thing which is so unique about cycling is you get the bigger guys, the heavier set guys, and you get guys who are really, really skinny and super light. Those would be the climbers and then the bigger guys would be your sprinters. So generally what happens is your chances are all heavily dictated on what the route looks like. So for example, the Tour de France, it's made up of 21 days and a sprinter can go there and win multiple stages, but has no chance of winning the overall because the overall race is one in the mountains. So that's where the climbers, they're going to make minutes and minutes on the bigger sprinters. So the World Championships this year, it's actually quite a flat route. So it's not really suited for your pure climbers. So the guys who won the Tour de France, they don't realistically have a chance of winning the World Champs this year. So going back to your question, I'm more of a sprinter. I'm a heavier set guy compared to <laughs> average cyclist. So the route does suit me. It's a mixed bag as well. The World Champs is always once off, one day. You could have good luck, bad luck. The last time I did World Championships in 2021, I crashed and went to hospital with a concussion. But I'm pretty confident. I'm in the top tier of the sport. I'm definitely not one of the big names of the sport. I'm definitely not a favorite. I'm going for a top 20. And I think it is realistic. What separates the top 20? Like, what is it at that point in your sport? A lot of it comes down to just sheer talent and ability. If you think of golf, there are golfers who play day in, day out. They're doing everything right. But for whatever reason, they're just not as good as those who are winning your championships and your tournaments. It can come down to your training. It can come down to so many things. But some people are just better and more gifted than others. Secondly, cycling, as much as it is an individual sport, you have one person crossing the finish line first. He is the winner. But you ride in a team. And your team are the guys who support you. They're the ones who will fetch you bottles or fetch you food if you need. They'll be the guys who will protect you if there's some wind or things like that. They'll get you into good position. If you have a problem with your bike and the car and your team that's following you with your spare bikes or mechanics maybe aren't able to get you in time, you'll need to climb onto a teammate's bike. And therefore, one person wins. It's an individual sport, but you ride in a team and you can't be a champion without having a really good and strong team. So the guys who are the most successful, the guys who are winning, they're very talented and gifted bike riders. They work hard, but they also are generally in good teams and they're well protected and looked after. You ride with these people, the names that people are familiar with. And is it just they're faster? It sounds like you guys are all doing probably equal training if you have even the same coaches. This is something that I battle with as well. And I will go to a training camp, for example, and yeah, we'll have the same coach. And some days we'll go out in a group of 15, 20 of us, and we all do the exact same thing. And I know that the last six months I've been doing everything right. I've been eating well. I've been doing my core strength work. But for whatever reason, this guy next to me is able to do the same mountain and he's going to do it four minutes faster than me. And I can do what I want, but he's just physiologically 
gifted and yeah, he's just able to produce more power and clear lactate. That's a big thing in cycling is your body's ability, lactal ability to clear lactic acid. Some people can just do it more efficiently than others. And I blame my parents. <laughs> Some people can just do it better. Another thing, which is what people have found in the last 10, 15 years is the benefits of altitude training. So those people will go to the top of a mountain and they'll be at 2,000, 2,500 meters above sea level. And the benefits that has on their ability to process increased red blood cells and things like that, people who are really focused and have the support of a team will have these blocks where, okay, you're not going to race for a month, go train on the top of a mountain. And, you know, someone like me personally, I'll benefit from that. But mentally, I'd really struggle because I'm already training alone. I'm already suffering and doing everything right to now be away from friends and family, not even see a person and be on the top of a mountain riding probably in snow and rain 80% of the time. I'm not willing to do that. And some people are, and maybe that's a difference. You do wonder, everyone's doing the same thing. And it does make you wonder, like there's the undertones of the doping stuff from the past. I saw a stat or I heard a stat. I, I don't know if it's still true, but they said the people today are even faster when the people got caught in the past, which is like, wow, how is that even possible? Firstly, I think the sport has developed so much. And as you mentioned, the whole doping cycling is a very tainted sport because of its past. But now there's so much monitoring and you have these whereabouts programs where you can be tested at any point. And for example, this morning, I kid you not, six o'clock, my doorbell rang and there was two people to test me. So I had to do a urine sample and blood sample this morning at yeah, six, six o'clock this morning. And it's one of those things, to be a professional cyclist now, you're on this whereabouts program. Every single day, you've got to log into an application and say where you're going to sleep, just so they can come randomly and, and test you. Oh, you. Wow. You get tested at races generally as well, but a lot of people in the past, when they were racing, they weren't doing anything. But when they were training and at home, that's when they were taking advantage. I personally believe this sport is a lot cleaner in the last 15 years. Personally, I don't know if it's possible to be doing it. People are always going to find a way to cheat and try and chip out the system, but yeah, I do believe it's a lot, you know. Secondly, the bikes have come a long way. Technology, R&D, things like that. The bikes are lighter, they're more aerodynamic. The rolling resistance on tires is quicker. So comparing the bicycles now to 15 years ago when the guys were doping, alone, the bike is two kilograms lighter, it's a lot faster, a lot more aerodynamic. That's going to make a difference. As well, back in the day, people were just worried about training. Now it's your sleep. It's your recovery. It's not just doing seven hours or eight hours every day. It's doing focus and specific training to ensure you're doing the best for you. There can be me and someone who's in the professional peloton doing the exact same training program. And he might benefit from doing those long, slow rides where I might benefit more from doing high intensity workouts just based on our genetics. So nowadays, our coaches, they really are able to identify your body type and, and how your system works and what is more beneficial to you than versus someone else. And I think because of this, as well as the bikes and everything I've mentioned, the eating, the nutrition, that's why people are so much faster than what they were 10, 15 years ago. And I believe it's just going to continue getting quicker and quicker. Damn, it's a lot. I was thinking back as well. If you ever need to go up a hill and beat someone, I'll go with you and you just kick my ass, dude. <laughs> I'll, I'll be like 40 minutes behind. <laughs> I'll see you at the top. You'll be like, oh, that guy's, you know, he must be doping. He's so slow. He's a dope. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> In sport as well, when you have that mental advantage, when you have that confidence, that's also everything that elevates you as well. So yeah, let's go for a training ride and then I can feel better <laughs> about myself. Good <laughs> Bring that confidence to the next tournament. 
I was curious about your discipline grind and your mental grind because it's four to eight hours a day, six days a week, it sounds like. You don't know if you're going to be in the 20th or in the 100th or in, you, you got fifth recently. What do you tell yourself and how do you stick with it? So with being a professional, it looks very glamorous, but there's a lot of responsibility. And I owe it to my sponsors, I owe it to my family and my fans to do everything right and to be disciplined and to work hard. Secondly, we're not signing contracts as a professional bike rider. It's not like you're signing 10-year contracts. Often it's year-to-year or two-year contracts, the very most three-year contracts. So you're fighting for your spot. And now you've got all these youngsters coming up who are super motivated, who won't demand a high salary at first. So you've got to keep your position. I'm going to be training because I want a job next year. And there's some young 21-year-old who's going to be asking for a tenth of my salary and he'll do it whatever it takes. That kind of keeps me going and a bit of a foot up the ass. But then again, this is my career and I want to thrive. I want to succeed. I want to be successful. And that's the only motivation you need, really. Why does anyone do anything? It's got to come with a drive from within. Yeah. I, I was thinking a lot of my audience is entrepreneurs, but I was reflecting, would I rather sit on a bicycle six hours a day and be a millionaire or sit at my computer six hours a day and be a millionaire? <laughs> I was like, man, sitting on a bicycle six hours a day, it's a lot. I do it once a week and then we do, you know, mini rides around the week. It's, it's a lot of dedication. It's a professional. I was curious the difference between an amateur and a professional, but I think the answer is almost obvious. It's like you treat it like a profession. You're not like, okay, I don't feel like riding today, so that's not how a professional does it. Exactly. And the difference is you get a lot of amateur social cyclists who ride their bike every day. And I look at them and I'm like, why are you doing this? I'm doing this because it's my job. It's my profession. I'm getting paid to do this. Why are you choosing to ride your bike? And <laughs> you know, some people just love it and they're, they're super passionate. But then you get those days, as you mentioned, where I look at my training program and I've got seven hours to do and it's raining outside and it's one degree and I've got to do it. I can't just decide, oh, I'll give today a skimp and I'll make up for it tomorrow. It's not how it works. And those are the days that make the difference. Those are the days that matter. They give you that mental edge, that resilience, toughness to just be like, okay, I've got to do this. It sucks, but I'm a professional for a reason. What do you tell yourself? Somebody asked me, what do you tell yourself on the hard parts? I always just think that question. What am I supposed to tell myself during this hard part? I'm like, I have my own thoughts and my own kind of mental scripts. I'm curious what goes through your head on the climbs or the intervals or the high intensities. I just think it's so easy to just give up. It would be so easy to not go and ride. Or when I'm doing an interval, if I've been suffering for 10 minutes and I know I've got to do a 20-minute interval, and my heart rate is through the roof and I'm, I'm struggling and I'm, I'm hitting every minute and I'm just feeling that burn. It would be easy to stop. Of course it would be. If it was easy, everyone would do it. To be successful, to thrive, to achieve, to be a champion, to be better than someone else, you've got to endure. You've got to want it more. And even if it means that I'm going to be pushing and I'm going to be suffering just to be 20th, not even first, but I'd rather be 20th than be 80th. And I'd rather endure this right now because... In five, 10 years, I might not be a professional cyclist anymore. And I'll look back on this time and think, if I just pushed a little bit harder in those training sessions, or if I was just a little bit more disciplined, what could have been? So I think it's the fear of looking back and, and having regret. Mm. And that's what you're thinking during it. So you don't think left on the table or left out that you didn't try at your best or give it your all. Exactly. And I think as a professional athlete as well, a lot of people think, I'd really love to have a bit of a break and have a sabbatical and then come back to it. But you don't have that privilege or that opportunity because professional sport is such a competitive environment and you're getting older. So I wouldn't be able to step away for a year, look at it objectively, take some time to reflect and then come back. 
I've got to just ensure that I give absolutely everything because it is such a fragile thing. And, and I think like an injury, I can have a crash tomorrow and that could be the end of my career. I could just have one bad season and then I don't get to renew my contract and no teams want me and then it's all done. So yeah, I'd rather just do everything I can and ensure that I capitalize and make the most of this amazing opportunity I do have. That is a pretty wild opportunity to be riding your bike and making money in business. And, and I think in life, people are like, don't turn your passions or interest into your profession. I still remember this story. I met a woman and she liked to make ice cream. And so she created an ice cream business. This is in New York and, it, and it's done well. And I was like, oh, do you like ice cream? She's like, no, I hate it. <laughs> She's, I don't know, I, but for me, I've always thought you should do what your interests are. How do you feel about that with cycling? I 100% agree. I go through peaks and troughs. I go through a period where maybe I'm just tired or I've done a race where I've been riding in the rain for the last week. And then someone will ask me, when you finish your career, will you still cycle regularly? And I'll say, hell no. The day I retire, I go and buy some hooks and I rack up the bike and that's me done. But I think though, to do this as a profession, you have to be passionate about the sport. And I truly am. But... I look at some of my friends who do it socially and they work throughout the week and then they get that Saturday and that Sunday off and they're just chomping at the bit to, to climb on their bike and go for a five-hour ride on a Saturday morning and wake up at five o'clock in the morning. Me, yeah. And I think to myself, why <laughs> would you do that? But it's become my profession and I'm not doing it for fun. I don't have the luxury of climbing on my bike to enjoy it. Every day I climb on my bike, I've got a program that I'm following, whether it be two hours, six hours. I'm not doing it because I want to. I do it because it's what I have to do. That's interesting. I was a little surprised you said you wouldn't ride as much afterwards. I think I would still ride. I think it would be amazing to be able to choose how much I want to ride or, or don't ride. I think that would be quite an exciting and looking forward to that part. But I just think, you know, so much of my life has been governed by cycling. And I've got to travel the world and I'm very privileged and grateful for that. But I cannot tell you 80% of the places I've been to. I can tell you what the hotel room looked like. But for example, Twitter de France or equivalent of that in Italy, I did this year called the Giro d'Italia. And that's 21 days. I know that we finished in Rome. Maybe I can name three cities other than that, but I can't recall much about it. Yes, we were in Napoli the one day and that was great. I think, of course, I enjoy it at times, but it's a job where I think maybe if it isn't a job, I get to go and ride my bike and I get to actually look at what I'm doing and my surroundings and mm. absorb it, take it all in. So you're right. Maybe I would do it and it would be a lot better after cycling. But right now it's more an obligation. Yeah. I'm trying to reflect on that because for me, when I'm climbing, I love climbing. That's my favorite part. That's not fun for me. That's not my fun time. If you're like, oh, do you see the view? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm trying to get as fast as possible to the top before anyone else. And then I'll look at the view, if there's a view. Or I'll go back down and go it slow with, if I'm with other people. Or obviously, if you're with me, you'll be ahead and I'll take my time. <laughs> but I don't know. I almost want you to enjoy it more. It's probably hard to enjoy it at that speed and at that, like, you're competing. I guess when I've done intervals, interval training, this is the first year I've really done that. It's very intense. It's not like, a, oh, I'm going to just cycle around the block. It's like, no, you're going to go as hard as you can for eight minutes, 30 minutes, whatever that is. I, just, I want you to enjoy the view. Maybe I have sounded a little bit pessimistic. I do enjoy it. So of course I do. But I just feel like it's definitely an, an obligation. And at times, it's not like I can say, oh, tomorrow I'm going to go do 100 kilometers and just cruise. Because I know that what I do afterwards is going to be observed and monitored by a coach. And he's going to see exactly every pedal stroke I took. 
You stopped at this uh, cafe for 25 minutes. Why did you do that? You stopped at this garage. You stopped at this viewpoint to take a photo. Like, maybe don't do that. So I feel like I'm being watched and being judged the whole time. And maybe that's just my own prerogative or me overthinking it. So maybe if I'm not a professional, I would just really feel more free. Yeah, I'm going to assume you enjoy it. That's why you're still writing. But it is a different experience. I was riding yesterday with two other best friends here. We're called the Trace Amigos. You met Dan when we were at the gas station. And we rode with the Barcelona Road Cycling Group. And there's an intermediate group and they're going out. And the group started taking off at three and a half kilograms, a watt to kilo. And I was like, shit, I want to keep up with this. This is pretty good on the flats. And I was in a slipstream. I was like, this is good. I can't really enjoy it, right? I'm just, I'm keeping up pretty well. But then my friends dropped off. And I was like, nah, they're not really good friends anyway. So I left them. <laughs> nah, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So I dropped out. I dropped off and like waited up for them. And then I rode with them. And, and I was like, I'm here to ride with them. That's my thing. I'm not a competitive professional. I want to ride. I want to be fit and feel good. Halfway through, we stop at a cafe and we have like beer without alcohol. We have one Coke. That's like our treat in the ride. But I think people think when they look at me doing YouTube videos or they see maybe my company, AppSumo.com, they're like, oh, you just like go out and do this on the street and get a million views. That's pretty easy. I'll go do it. It's like, one, try to do it and then try to do it every week and then try to do it for three years. And it's not that it's impossible. Like physically, I think for cycling, some things you have to be genetically a little different. But I think in anything, it's like, how serious are you taking it? And if you're not taking it seriously, you can't really expect to be in the top 20, the top positions of these places in anything. Exactly. And I mean, what you're doing is your passion and you enjoy it, but it is still work. And I have no doubt that you go through periods where you don't want to put out a podcast or put out a video and you almost feel obliged to. Not that you don't enjoy it when you do it, but it's still always sitting in the back there like, uh. Yes. Yes. Well, like chatting with you today is awesome. I was like, oh my God, I'm so curious about the behind the scenes of a professional cyclist. But there's another day where I had to record some stuff for a YouTube video. It's okay. Just get it through. Just get through it. Yeah. Do you guys have mental coaches? In these professional teams? We do. What is all the coaches you'll have? Firstly, you're cycling your training coach, and they'll be the ones that look at what you're doing on the bike. We'll have strength and conditioning coaches who also do a bit of rehabilitation if you're coming from an injury, physiotherapists, massage therapists as well. There, Some of them are like chiros or osteos. And then we have a mental coach, which is it's up to the rider if you want to take advantage of that. But any professional sport, even in business, you want to be at the top is really important. And yeah, our mental guy, he's great. And he always tries to, to show you the bigger picture and understand why you're doing certain things. And at the end of the day, it is riding a bike. I, I'd always say it's a matter of life and death because unfortunately, about a month ago, there was a crash in a race. And one of my friends, actually an ex-teammate, he passed away in a crash from a bike race. But that doesn't happen regularly. It's just riding a bike. And there are worse things. You could be <laughs> struggling a lot more. But yeah, I think having a mental coach is really important. And especially in professional sports and especially something like cycling where you're spending so much time alone and it's a lot of discipline, depression and anxiety is a big thing. It is good that the teams are aware of that and, and they do provide resources and people to, to help with those sorts of things. Mm. Do you listen to podcasts? Are you allowed to listen to music when you train? Do you listen to anything? like? I do. I really need to. It's mindless. I think if I'm doing specific work, and I've really got to push hard. You know, it's hard to kind of focus on a podcast. So then I'll just put music in. But if I've got a long day with just some kind of miles and get six hours in, in the bank, then I'll put on some podcasts. How does someone actually make one of these professional teams? Like, how do you get on the UAE? So this is a very complex question. What would happen is you have to be approached. So either a team will have a scout who will identify you racing as an amateur or as a youngster. 
And if not that, as a rider, you have an agent. You're represented by an agent or a manager and they'll, on your behalf, reach out to these teams. The manager will go and say to the team, hey, listen, we've got Ryan. We think he'll be a good fit for you. Sign him up. Teams will be like, we want to know what is he capable of. And that's when they'll go and have a look at your training. So all your training rides, go to a database and they can see how numbers you're doing, how many watts per kilos you're doing, your heart rate data, things like that. And they can even run other tests to see VO2 max and all sorts of things like that. But yeah, so generally teams would either reach out or your agent would represent you. But it is difficult. And a lot of amateurs who are phenomenal and they're winning these local races or they're doing these group rides in the mornings and they're head and shoulders by everyone else. And they think to themselves, oh, I rode up that climb faster than 50 other guys. I should be professional. Not that easy so to go professional. Hence why, as I mentioned earlier, to have this opportunity to be in this position, it's truly special and it would be very ignorant and selfish to give it up. And so for you with UAE, how did that happen? I was riding for another team, which was called NTT. And I did the Tour de France in 2020. And that year, UAE, they won the tour. And I think they obviously liked what they saw, some of my results that year. And my agents put in a word for me. And yeah, next thing I know, I got a call from the general manager of the team. And he said, ah, hey, Ryan, we like what you see. And would you be keen to have a discussion about having your future here? Of course, I jumped at it because, yeah, you're probably the top three teams in the world. And it has been very dominant over the last three years. So to be associated with them, it's a dream come true. And for teams at this level, not necessarily you specifically, but what's the average pay of someone in these teams? So there's a big discrepancy between the race winners, the guys who are winning the tour, and kind of your domestiques. So your domestiques are the guys who are team members who are going to be riding on the front, working for their leaders, fetching bottles, things like that. So for a perfect example, in our team, I know for a fact that guys on the team are a squad of 30 riders. And the highest paid in our team is probably close to 10 million a year. And the lowest paid is on 70,000 a year. So big discrepancy. I would say the average pay for riders in the world is probably anywhere between 200 to 300,000 a year. And that's just standard salary. Prize money is not a big thing in the sport because... As I said, it's a team sport and individual wins and then he'll get X amount, but it's not spectacular. And then he's got to split that with all the riders at the race. You know, we split with our staff members because if we go to a race with eight riders, we're going to have 20 staff members and that's going to be chefs, mechanics, people to do massages, bus drivers, truck drivers, the people who are in the cars. So yeah, there's eight riders, but there's a massive squad. And when you split that prize money, the money gets, it's quite small quite quickly. But another way where some riders make some extra money is through endorsement deals. So as a professional rider, you have your sponsors. Everyone will ride in a team on the same bicycle, the same clothing, same helmet, generally sunglasses. But riders can have their own shoe sponsors, for example. Or some teams, they have nutrition sponsors open. That's how riders can make a bit, a bit extra money. Yeah, I think you were saying some people even on the teams make a million. Like obviously like the top of the world can make tens, but like a million dollars riding is pretty sweet. Seems pretty good. I, I guess it's also depends on where you are. Are there other perks of being a pro? I think as a professional cyclist, yeah, some people are earning a million, some are earning upwards of 10. There aren't that many, but yeah, guys on my team, the top guys, he's on close to 10 million. It's a very short-lived career. It's not like he's going to be earning this for the next 40 years of his life. He's mid-20s, realistically, he might be on the same kind of money for five to 10 years. And that's it. The perks with being a professional cyclist is thereafter, there's generally always going to be opportunities. 
whether it be working within the sport, within a team as a mentor or as a coach or as a director in commentary, cycling is growing and it's becoming more and more popular worldwide. And you've got all these TV stations and, and broadcast companies that are getting involved. Also with bicycle manufacturers and brands, like a brand, for example, Colmago is our bicycle sponsor. And they would jump at the opportunity once I've retired or even whilst I'm currently in the team to use me for these events or these launches. And they'll say, okay, let's go to the UAE or let's go to Italy to the factory and do a guest ride and eat at this fancy restaurant and stay in this nice hotel and bring your wife. So those are the extra perks, which are pretty cool. And as I mentioned, you think life after cycling, if you want to stay in the industry, it should be pretty easy to ensure that you have a job and have a bit of something to look forward to afterwards. Not job security, but that you aren't just going to disappear. Yeah. One, you told me that you have to wear the sponsor's headphones. You said one of the guys wore AirPods and you guys are sponsored by JBL. Shout out JBL. I am wearing AirPods, but I'll bleep them out. <laughs> and he got fined. That was interesting. I didn't think about that. Every team, so like I mentioned, generally the only things that across all teams, you're going to have a bicycle manufacturer sponsor and clothing and helmets. But yeah, our team, we're sponsored by JBL. We're, we're very fortunate that we get wireless headphones and the earphones and the speakers and things like that. Some other teams aren't sponsored by any kind of thing like that. But because we are, we're obligated to use them. And if you don't, as a sponsor, you're giving money and you're giving product and to see one of the riders who are in the public eye, me not so much because I'm not really big on social media, but I've got teammates that have got upwards of a million followers. And if they've got the wrong kind of products or competitors, brands, that's going to raise some eyebrows. <laughs> So you've got to just ensure you use what you're given and yeah. be happy about it and say how amazing it is. And I'm pretty fortunate because our stuff is really good. But yeah, it's I think quite important to respect your sponsors because they, they're giving you a lot. It's the right thing to do. I watched the Netflix show for Tour de France came out, which was phenomenal. And then the golf one is out and I watched it. I don't, I don't know anything about golf. I still don't care about golf. But I thought the show was good. But I was just blown away mostly by how much money these people make. and. It seemed like they make a lot of money besides sponsors on the tour, actually getting prize money. But bicycling prize money, I just saw the numbers on the Tour de France stuff. It was like, you win a stage, you get $10,000. And then if you win the whole thing, I, th I think Jonas, I don't know what he made, but it was like 100,000 euros or something. It was seemed tiny relative to the effort and the prestige. I was surprised that maybe that's something they'll adjust in the future. I don't know. I think that definitely flawed. As you mentioned, 10,000 for a stage win and then winning the whole thing is maybe 100,000. And then he's going to split that between eight riders and 20-odd staff members. So that 100000 he's going to probably walk away with 3000 bucks from that. And again, something like the Tour de France is one of the biggest viewed sporting events in the world. Other than the Olympic Games and maybe the FIFA Soccer World Cup, it's the Tour. So yeah, I, I can't actually believe that there is so little prize money in it. I think it does definitely need to change. But yeah, comparing it to tennis and golf and UFC and things like that, it's actually embarrassing. It's wild. Yeah. How does it actually feel to be on the tour? You said you did it two years ago. And then how did it feel not to get selected this year? So doing it is spectacular. I mean, it is the pinnacle of the sport. People who don't know anything about cycling, if you say cycling and professional, they're going to say up oh, the tour. That's what people know. And to get to do it and to finish on the Champs-Élysées in Paris, it's surreal. Dream come true, something that I inspired. And when I first ever saw the tour, it was when Lance was winning when I was five or six years old. And I thought, that is so damn awesome. 
So to get there and to say that I've done it and tick that box and be one of eight South Africans who finished the sweater, yeah, it's phenomenal. And it's something that I'm always going to cherish. To be not selected, again, we've got a squad of 30 riders and only eight go to the tour. And we pretty much know what our objective is. Being in UAE Team Emirates, they won the Tour de France in 2020 and 2021. They were second last year, second again this year. It's pretty clear that with our main guy today, Pogacar, he's the main guy. If you go to the Tour, you're going to be riding for him. And if you're a sprinter or if you aren't able to assist him, you have no chance. Just because I didn't get selected with this team wouldn't necessarily mean I wouldn't get selected in another team. And that's what's sometimes hard to digest. So like my family, even they'll say, oh, Ryan, you didn't go to the tour this year. You're not good enough. I just didn't fit in with our team's strategy this year. It does suck because again, it's the pinnacle of the sport and, and you want to do it every year. But it is hard. Realistically, with being part of the team that's aim is to win it, you've got to be a top climber. And I'm unfortunately a little bit of a heavier set rider. So yeah, I think it, it would be very unlikely that I'm going to get to do it in UAE colors. You support them at other races? Why do you think they recruited you? Because the type of rider that I am, I'm more of a sprinter type rider. So for example, you have three grand tours. So these are your big 21-day races. The one is in Italy, the one is in France, and the one is in Spain. And my team, you have different objectives at each race. So we'll go to the Tour, Tour de France, biggest in the world, and the goal is to win overall, win the yellow jersey. We'll go to the Giro d'Italia and the goal will be, okay, guys, we obviously want to win this race as well. But we want to win as many stages as we can. So we want to win the days that are flat and fast. We want to win the days that are up a mountain. And I'm suited and I'm able to win one of those on the flat stages. So I would go to the Giro, for example, and thrive there because I get the opportunity and it would fit in with the team strategy and, and performance plan more so. What's Girona like? For people that don't know, and, and most people who aren't into cycling probably wouldn't know, but Girona's the mecca, at least in my opinion, of cycling, right? Lance made it famous, George Hencappy, all these other people who I don't know their names, Ryan Gibbons. <laughs> and so what, what is life like there for you, for someone to actually live as a pro cyclist? It's phenomenal. As you mentioned, those Americans in late 90s, early 2000s made it famous. And since then, there's been such an influx of English speakers whether it be Americans, Australians, South Africans, British. And the riding here is fantastic. The weather's pretty good all year round. There's so many like little cafes and restaurants and bike stores that are owned by ex-professionals. Every road you go down, there's a new bicycle service station or a coffee shop that's run by professionals. So there's cycling memorabilia all over the walls. It's phenomenal. There's a little spot that sells just beer. And also, there was an ex-pro cyclist who used to run it. So definitely a spot. If you're a big cycling fan, you've got to come to Girona. You'll probably bump into a couple of professionals. You'll find people to ride with. And yeah, again, the riding, the terrain, phenomenal. For gravel, mountain bike, road, whatever you want to do, this is the spot. Are, are you guys allowed to have beer as pro cyclists? Because it's carbs? 100%. <laughs> we shouldn't. It's frowned upon. But I myself definitely do love a beer. And the beer here is also amazing. We've got a big pale ale kind of culture. And I was never a big fan of IPA or things like that. But here they've got double IPAs and what's called a Nipa, which is a New England IPA. So very fruity, oh, <laughs> phenomenal, just very strong. And yeah. when you're having 7 8% beers, yeah, you feel that very quick. Do, do you know what your body fat is? It differs. I mean, it does fluctuate throughout the season. But when I'm really on form, it's between 5 and 6. Bro. So I'm probably down about 8. 
but I'll blame the beers for that. Yeah. But yeah, when I'm on the regime and I'm saying no to the beers and watching everything, yeah. Good for you, man. Wow, that is impressive. I am curious, how do you think about your future with this, with post-cycling? I was having a discussion with a friend about if I was a cyclist, I think I'd be nervous. What do I do after this? Whereas for computer jobs, I can probably use my brain for the next some odd 30, 40 years. And the second part, I also wondered, how come you don't build your brand more? How come you don't want to be out in social media and get more sponsors from stuff like that? So yes, it is something that I do worry about or think about a lot. I think more so in that a lot of riders and professional riders who have retired that I've known that I've become friends with whilst racing is that they almost lose their sense of identity. As a professional rider, you go to a bike race and people just want your autograph and, and you just wade on hand and foot. You know, you climb off your bike and your mechanic washes your bike for you and your chef repairs your meals and your washing is done for you and you just treat it like a baby because you just looked after. And then you stop cycling and all of a sudden no one wants to go riding with you. No one wants you to sign their head or ask for your gloves anymore. So I do think that sense of identity and kind of being praised and wanted and not having that anymore, I think that's something that's every professional athlete or someone in the limelight has to deal with if they step away. I think it would be unwise for me to leave the cycling industry. I think I've learned a lot and I've established a lot of connections and network well. So once I've retired from professional cycling to leverage that and, and use my expertise and knowledges, whether it be as a coach or as a commentator or something like that, I think it would be foolish. So I, I don't know exactly know what I'll do, but I, I'd like to think that the networks and the, the friendships I've made would be able to line up a job for, for me post-cycling. Does it make sense for you to build a brand? What I've thought about, especially with the YouTube universe, is that so many of the people who are making a lot of money and seems like they have interesting careers are the ones who never even won a race. Right? Like in mountain biking, Seth's bike hacks, he has this YouTube channel, Burn Peaks, and he's never even, I don't even think he's ever competed, and he's the number one mountain bike I would say, revenue generator in the world. And so I would guess I was curious how you thought about it for yourself. That is something that multiple people have told me and it is maybe very unwise and maybe I'm just lazy. I think it is something that could be hugely beneficial and yeah, something I think I do need to work on. So thank you for being yet another person who's, I think you're very right. And I think a little bit of what hinders me is that as a professional athlete, I've got to give off this very professional demeanor and under the magnifying glass and you are a professional rider and your sponsors are looking at you. So I do almost feel I'd be afraid to be a bit more myself because I'd love to go for beers and post about my beers, but officially I shouldn't be doing that because my sponsor might be like, oh, Ryan, but you were pretty useless at the race on the weekend and now you are with your mates having beers. And even though maybe that would generate a following and people would be like, oh, this guy is like relatable and he seems pretty cool. I'd always think, at the moment, I'm getting paid by my sponsors. I've got to keep them happy and do the right thing. Having said that, you're right. I think I should probably do it. Why not? And it could definitely lead to more in the future. Yeah, I think it provides like a, a hedge of sorts for your for future. Sure. And you have an opportunity where you have access to Tadej, the Yates brothers, other tour riders, yourself, your training, whatever is allowed to be shared. And it's interesting. I think the caveat I would say is that you have to enjoy it. This provides a meeting where I got to connect with someone like you and I followed up with you because I was like, oh man, I want to hear your story. And, I, and then also I get to share your story. And I, I just love mm -hmm. doing it. I don't even know if I get paid from stuff like this. <laughs> so, but I think that's the part to consider. Not, well, I'm supposed to do it because two of these guys I met, you should do more social media. It's effort either way, but I, I really enjoy this effort. No, you're right. And like you said, I've got the platform and I'm right now I can leverage my position because somewhat in the limelight, I do have these networks. I do have these connections with these 
stars of the sport. So it would be very, yeah, unwise. Yeah, maybe it, by the way, your sponsors would love you too. They're like, look, I'm drinking beer with my JBL headphones. And thank you. And what is my recovery score? And you know, I see how I'm yeah, right. Dude, for sure. And some final questions. What do you do the rest of the day? So you ride five hours, you eat a bunch of carbs and sugars. So for me, because I'm going to the World Championships in Glasgow, Scotland, firstly, as a South African, life is very difficult when it comes to visas and residencies and things like that. We have a green passport, which pretty much gets you nowhere. So the rest of my day is going to be admin around getting my visa finalized for Scotland. And then thereafter, go wash my bike, get some new cleats for my shoes. They're a bit worn. Yeah. And, and then just legs up, relax for the rest of the day until I have my low-carb dinner. Han, <laughs> do you really keep your legs up? You're joking or serious? Honestly, I think it's an old school train of thought. Keep your legs innovated for blood flow and lymph drainage and that sort of thing. They say, why stand if you can sit? Why sit if you can lie down? And legs innovated for recovery and flushing out the legs. It might be absolute nonsense, but it's what I was told. Oh, no. If I hang out with you, could I, should I push you around in like a wheelchair just so you don't use your legs? That would be a great idea. But you joke about that. My first ever grand tour, so that 21-day race, the first ever one I did... We went to the restaurant, the, the hotel restaurant, and our room was on the first floor. And some of the older riders would not walk upstairs. There were maybe 14 steps. And they were like, nope, tomorrow we've got 200 kilometers. Not going to walk up these 14 odd steps in the elevator. Save your legs. You know, if they're going to that extreme of avoiding that many steps, I may as well get in a wheelchair or even just a flat bed and be pushed around everywhere. <laughs> and then have you tried those Air Relax or Nomadic pants? Yeah, Air Relax. And I think they're great. When you're on tour, you have massage therapists to look after you. But when I'm at home, yeah, I put those on three times a week and, and they're great. Forced me to keep my legs innovated, but definitely help for that kind of recovery and yeah, limp drainage. Yeah, it's funny. I was at a, I live in Austin, Texas the rest of the year and I was at a recovery center where they have a hot tub and a sauna and a cold plunge and they have the pants. And there was me and my friend Neville there doing it. We're casual athletes and we're relatively fit. And there's literally this professional track and field athlete. We're like, yeah, you should probably use those. Like they're like we put them on. They're like no, just stop. <laughs> How do you guys do that for twenty one days? The Tour de France. I do one day, and I'm like out the whole week. I think the first thing is your ass. You get this ass fitness, and one day three, you're just numb the whole whole time there. But everyone is in the same boat. When I climb on the bike on day three, I feel the same way after day fifteen. Everyone is in the same boat. You're getting good meals. You're getting massages. You're getting looked after. That helps, but. It's just conditioning. It's years and years of doing it. And just knowing that you're going to feel pretty crap, but there's 170 guys around you who are feeling just as crap. That is a wrap. I hope you love the episode as much as I did making it for you, as well as Ryan. Go give him some love on Instagram and Twitter at RyanGibbons23, R-Y-A-N-G-I-B-B-O-N-S 23, as well on Strava, Ryan Gibbons, R-Y-A-N-G-I-B-B-O-N-S. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's go ride a tandem bike together. Don't do that. Before you go, tweet at me or hit me up on Instagram at Noah Kagan. I love hearing you and what you think about these episodes. Also, if you need a scheduling tool, this is what I use to talk to customers as well as coordinate meetings and guest interviews for this show. I use tidycal.com. It's 29 bucks for life, but you can also use almost all the features for free. And it's got some features that no one else has. Like you can charge people to actually meet with you. I don't think you have to pay a lot of money for that or we don't charge you extra for it. You can do group meetings. You can also have mutual availability so it'll automatically recommend times for you. Pretty, pretty snazzy. Free. And if you want pro version, 29 bucks for life. That's tidycal.com. 
Finally, a couple shout-outs to the amazing team who helps put all this together. Jason at podcasttech.com for making these podcasts sound so fresh. Thank you to Jeremy, Cam, Sasa, Nikki, Jen, Tommy, and Sylvie from the Dork Team. Y'all make my life amazing. I appreciate you. Have a healthy day. What's your favorite? Gum. <laughs> <laughs>